0: You are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Strangers and the Strange Dead by Kipler, Chapter 3 There were three quiet weeks with no strangeness and no bodies, and it was into February, with the river ice rotting and heaving under the snow that still fell. Night came later, and day went on until 5.30, and people began to remember that spring was a real thing. I went to the library three times in the three quiet weeks. I searched the newspapers from December 2002 through the following March, the winter Theodore Romaine had turned up in the woods of West Virginia. It was hard to find the stories I was looking for. The papers were juggling bigger headlines, The bombing of UN headquarters, the stock crisis, the quarantine of London. It was hard for me to recall how urgent those stories had been at the time. I had been 18, old enough to pay attention to the news, but world events had seemed distant to me. Then something other people paid attention to, took care of. Still among the big stories, I managed to find what I was looking for. Three small pieces describing three bodies found in the wooded hills of West Virginia. Each body had been found in the winter snow, and each had been strangely overlooked by the world at large. On President's Day, the coffee shop was busy. Other people's holidays always make more work for the people who don't get the day off. We ran out of sesame bagels and chocolate crullers and people were irritated to have their breakfasts ruined. I didn't notice that the FBI agents had come back until I was saying, hi, I'm Wendy, can I get you something to drink? And it was those two faces looking back at me. I was glad to see them. It had been three weeks without drama in town and suddenly I wanted the mystery to hang fresh over us. Oh, you're back, I said. Did something happen? I asked the question without thinking, as if I had a right to hear information about the case, because I was the one who brought these people coffee. But I had been there first, with Thomas Hopkins, and maybe that counted for something, because the man answered me. There was another body, he said. Oh, I thought of the girl with the pierced ear and wished the drama gone again. Something was stiff and hard between the man and the woman that day. They huddled on their own sides of the table and didn't speak, but kept their eyes focused out the window as they chewed their food and drank their coffee. The man seemed smaller than I remembered, folded or tucked in somehow. I meant to find a reason to speak to them again, but a family of eight came in and I had to push tables together And by the time I looked up from my work, the agents had gone. I stayed on late to close the shop because there was no one else to do it and because I needed the money. Just before closing about 430, a man came in. He didn't come to the counter to order and didn't sit in a booth, but walked to the payphone. He picked up the receiver, held it to his ear, lifted his other hand to the number pad. But he didn't dial. He stood looking at the phone as if he had forgotten what to do next. He waited there for a long time, a minute, maybe some chunk of time that feels long and slow when you're standing still watching it, then dropped the receiver and walked back out the front door. I kept on wiping the counter and the front of my mind didn't think about the strange man until the smell made its way to my nose. It was the smell of hunters and street people and Thomas Hopkins, and it had fallen off that man. I went to the front door and peeked out. The stranger was standing on a snowbank by the edge of Main Street. He was rocking back and forth on his heels, looking first one way and then the other up the hill, down to the river. The coffee shop was empty by then. I put the closed sign in the window and pulled on my coat. The stranger watched as I approached him. He didn't stop swaying in place when I spoke. You lost, I asked him the same question I'd asked Thomas Hopkins. The man stared blankly at me and kept rocking. He was alike somehow to Hopkins and to the woman Wayne had found on Route 60. I couldn't say what it was the eyes, maybe, the strange way the body moved but I could tell that this man had the same hurt on him as those other two had. He was familiar to me, known. And I wasn't afraid this time. I took my hand and touched the man's forearm. You lost? I asked again. You want some soup? I've got food in there. I pointed back at the coffee shop. The man looked at me. He flexed his jaw and I thought that he was trying to talk. But then he raised his lip and I saw that he was missing two teeth. The eye tooth on the upper right and the one behind it. The flesh of the gum where the teeth should have been was ragged and raw. It was a new wound. It hurts when I chew. The man's voice was matter of fact. When he stopped speaking, his eyes looked past me, up the hill again, down to the river. Then he seemed to make up his mind and stepped off the snowbank, began moving toward the water. His steps were slow, small, almost mechanical, as if he'd been walking for miles. I ran back into the coffee shop and dialed Wayne's number. There was no answer. I tried Wayne's house and still there was no answer. My heart was pounding. On a long shot, I called the Easy Rest Hotel and was rewarded. The Easy Rest receptionist told me that yes, the FBI agents were staying there and yes, she would patch me through to one of them. It was the man who answered the phone. Hi, I said, this is Wendy down at the coffee shop. Yes, what can I do for you? Well, a man just showed up here. He looks, he's acting like the other one. I heard the man on the phone exhale. I'll be down as soon as I can. He's not here now, I said. He's walking toward the bridge. I looked out the window. The man had not gotten far with his tiny, careful steps. The blender was cleaned for the day, but I got it out and poured some vegetable soup in it and ran it until the soup was liquid. Then I poured the liquid into a takeout cup and shoved a straw into my coat pocket. It only took me a minute or two to catch up with the man. Hey, I said, tapping him on the shoulder. This won't hurt your mouth. He stopped walking and turned toward me. It's a soup shake, I said. The man nodded when he saw what I had done and took the cup from me. He took a sip of the warm soup, then set out walking again. I fell in alongside him. What's your name? I asked, where are you from? But he didn't speak again to me. It took us 15 minutes to get to the bridge. The sun was coming in low now, striking the pool of water glinting in our eyes. This seemed to hold the man's attention. He stopped walking, leaned up against the green steel rails, stared down into the water. I looked closely at him then. His brown hair was peppered with gray. It was tousled and short enough that in spots it stood away from his scalp. I could make out a pink scar crossing the skin there. His face was bony and angular, mottled where frostbite had gotten it. There were lines around his eyes at the edges of his mouth. I stood watching him for a long time. I kicked at the snow on the roadside. It lay in ragged patches, petrified and broke hollow under my feet. The sound of a car broke the silence. The FBI man pulled up alongside us, parked and got out of his car. Where's your partner? I asked. She went out to the site where they found the body. She's not back yet. The FBI man moved close to the stranger and spoke, sir. He said, sir. The stranger looked at him, but didn't answer. And after a moment turned away again and went back to staring at the water. The FBI man stepped back away from us and put his cell phone to his ear. When he spoke, I knew that something had changed in him. I could hear the thickness of his voice. Scully, he said, I need to see you down at the bridge. There was a pause as he listened to the woman on the other end of the line. Then he spoke again. No, what I have to tell you relates to the case. I think it's more important that you be here right now. The stranger stood looking at the water. He seemed to have forgotten the cup of soup, forgotten us. The FBI man put away his cell phone and leaned against the hood of his car. His eyes moved between the road and the face of the man. He shifted from one foot to the other, checked his watch. His finger tapped a persistent hollow rhythm. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five against the cold metal of the car. I felt strange to be here suddenly. I backed away, put myself outside the business between these two men. It was darkening now, becoming dusk as we waited. Headlights flashed across the steel frame of the bridge. The FBI agent shaded his eyes against the light, peered at the oncoming car. The headlights dimmed and his partner emerged. He walked to her, intercepted her as she came onto the bridge. She stood straight with her arms stiff at her sides. I couldn't see the FBI man's face. He was standing with his back to me, but he didn't seem to notice her posture. He put his hands on her shoulders, then drew them down her arms until he stood clasping her hands in his. His head moved as he spoke to her. And suddenly she looked up at me, at the stranger, tried to tug her hands away from her partner's. He held her there for a moment until she turned back and looked him in the eye. Then he nodded slightly, squeezed her hands and let her go. She came past me when she moved forward. Her partner did not follow, but stayed apart with me. She moved stiffly, deliberately, and her face was still. She walked next to the strange man and looked at his face as he stood staring at the water. He did not look up at first. She reached out and touched him on the cheek. He flinched and slapped the hand away then turned his head to look at the woman. I spoke. His mouth is hurt. My words were too loud and I knew I should not have broken the silence. I looked over at the male FBI agent but he wasn't watching me didn't notice me. He was watching the other two. The stranger turned his body toward the woman. She stepped close to him, so close that I couldn't see the dim light between them. Do you know who I am? She said. I watched her face change as she spoke, saw her struggling to keep it still and unbroken. The man didn't acknowledge her words. She spoke again. Do you remember me? The man looked at her and lifted his hand to her head, petted her there and drew out several strands of hair. Let them fall. He parted his lips and I saw the angry gap where the teeth were missing. You cut your hair, he said. A sound came from the woman. Then a sob held back and she pressed her palms flat against the stranger's rib cage and bent her head let her forehead fall against him. When she lifted her face, her eyes were wet. He touched her hair again, bent to sniff it, ran one finger down the line of her part. He took her right hand and held it up to the fading light of evening. His fingers traced the smooth curve of her thumbnail, the ridges between her knuckles, the dish of her palm. He nodded. I've been looking for you, Mulder, she said, her voice was deep and cracked. I've been looking for you. He moved against her. Then leaned his body forward so that there was no space between them. I saw her stumble, shift her feet, steady herself to bear the weight of him. They stood like that and did not move or speak. And the FBI man stood apart and pressed his fingers against his eyes and did not speak. And that was the last piece I saw of their story. If you like this story, please follow the link to the writer's page and leave some love. Kudos, comments, or subscribe. They'll love hearing from you. Then you can head over to our Patreon page and contribute to Audio Fanfic Podcast. As a member, you are granted early access to one new story per month. That's www.patreon.com slash audiofanficpod. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there.